all the stuff about holiness, all the stuff about getting rid of sin, all the stuff about living a good life and following the rules, you know what that's about? That's just about clearing out all the crud that freaks you and me out so much so that we can just be with Christ. We can just be present with him. Read the Gospel of John. What's he call his disciples? Friends. Friends. On the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, Thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the gift of this community of believers, Lord, this local um, expression of your church. We pray, Father God, that you might bring among us today a sensitivity to your spirit, that you would speak to us, that you would open us up, Lord, to hear and to know your heart for us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Oh. Well, Tom told me a story on Wednesday morning, um, men's prayer, and then we go to Perko's after, wink, wink, men. Um, and uh, I don't know, I guess somehow we got on this topic, <laughs> but uh, he's telling me a story about um, he was headed to the airport, and um, as he's going, as he's going in to, um, you know, departures, um, he sees this one car parked under a tree in the middle of the parking lot. And he thought, that guy got the good spot, right? It's like, of all the cars baked out there baking in the sun, this one guy is in the shade underneath a tree. His dashboard's going to be safe, you know, whatever it is. Two or three days later, he's headed home, <laughs> and that same car <laughs> is, in, uh, is under that same tree. Only this time, leaving the airport, the car is covered in the gifts of our feathered friends. <laughs> and he thought, <laughs> not blessed is the man who's parked under the tree, but blessed are the ones who parked out under no tree, under the baking sun, <laughs> and who did not have deposits left on their paint jobs. Uh, and so often, things switch inside out. <laughs> when you give them enough time, right? Um, 
you look at that at the beginning and you start to think, man, you want to be under the tree. You think you want to be parked in the shade. But given enough space and given enough context and given uh, enough understanding, you start to see that the shade is not such a great place to be parked because it attracts other people and other things who are doing things that you don't want upon the hood and roof of your car. Well, our text is the Beatitudes. There's eight of them. They're short statements. They're like five, six words. And they're so kind of seared into our consciousness, into our understanding of the world, because what Jesus does is he takes, and in, in these, this brief sort of moment, he turns everything that we think we know about the world inside out where we think that it's good not to be poor in spirit, but to be wealthy in spirit, to be rich in spirit. And instead he takes that and he immediately turns it inside out. We think that it's good not to be one who mourns, but to be one who has nothing to mourn over, yet he takes that and immediately turns it inside out. We think that it's not the merciful, but the vengeful who are blessed in this world, and yet he takes that. He turns it inside out. Jesus turns our world upside down. And it's not only a matter of coming up with a, you know, some memorable lines. This is the beginning of the greatest sermon ever preached, Sermon on the Mount. We'll be going through parts of it over the next few weeks. But this introduction to this amazing sermon, I think are worth our attention. If you pay attention, one of the things that we pick up on is that Jesus is doing something special. We noticed last week that he has called his disciples, these 12 men, out of their normal lives. He's called them out of their lives of, on the lake, in particular the Sea of Galilee, these fishing lives. They're following him around as he proclaims the kingdom of heaven, as he demonstrates God's right order, as he demonstrates the world put to rights, the world as it ought to be where he's preaching, saying, look, the light is here. And so now, because the light is here, the roaches of death and disease and demonic power all scatter. That's what Jesus is doing as he goes around Galilee and preaches and proclaims and heals and casts out demons and says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Everywhere he shines the light, all the messengers of sin and death run away. And he gathers to himself these 12 disciples, this new Israel, in a way, these new, this new 12 tribes, where instead of tribes, he's gathered instead apostles. And he begins to teach them. Maybe you've noticed this, maybe you haven't, but when Jesus actually sits down for the Sermon on the Mount, he does not teach the crowds that gather around him. He doesn't teach the hundreds of people who probably... We're there on the mountainside listening. He's teaching the disciples. He sits down to teach the 12, and then it's only as the people listen in that they begin to pick up on, oh, this is what life is like in Jesus' kingdom. He publicly teaches this private group of men and presents in a transparent way what he wants to intensify and demonstrate privately. What Jesus wants to put forward here 
It's what the, the right order looks like under God's reign. And so he builds in, this, in these Beatitudes, he builds what fancy people call an inclusio, okay? It's just a fancy word for parentheses. <laughs> it's a verbal parentheses. I don't know if you picked up on it when we read the Beatitudes, but notice the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? And then all the others are different. You know, blessed are the merciful for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. But that last one, again, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He repeats at the beginning and the end, he puts these kind of brackets, this sort of verbal, linguistic, word-formed paragraph, uh, not paragraph, uh, parentheses, there, there's, around, around his teaching as a way of saying that this begins and ends the kingdom of God, that if you want to know what it is to live on in this kingdom, everything is sort of here. This is what we're about. We are kingdom people. We are kingdom people. We're not about our order, our way of doing things, but instead we are about God's order and way. And in fact, he says there is the kingdom of God. Not blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of God, but rather theirs is now and even here. Even as we struggle to understand how and why, they begin to possess and live in that kingdom in that way. Well, hmm. <laughs> I want to talk about two of the Beatitudes. Um, there's always a temptation to do more than I should. <laughs> and I should probably preach a sermon on each one, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but that would get us deep into pregame analysis. And so... Uh, Kay is grateful that I'm not going to do that this morning. <laughs> I think what I want to preach on today, talk about, is, is in particular mourning and meekness. And the sermon I might have preached on mourning, maybe the sermon I should have preached, maybe the sermon that's a little too close to home right now that I just don't want to preach on mourning, is that those who are grieving the loss of something serious in their life. Those who are grieving the loss of a family member, the loss of a loved one, the loss of maybe some physical ability, the loss of an opportunity that when we mourn those things, even in those places, we will be comforted. Why? Because what we ultimately find is that in the kingdom of God, those things that we loved, that we put our life into, that we poured ourselves into, are returned to us in the full. And what we receive back from God is even more than we would have had if we had held on to that thing for which we grieve in the first place. That's a sermon I maybe should have preached. It's not the sermon I'm going to preach. <laughs> I walked into the women's Bible study, another plug here, I walked into the women's Bible study on Tuesday. I try to time it um, so that I, I catch them right at the end. Uh, and I'll usually go get a cup of coffee or something on Tuesday morning when they're there. And they're going through the Beatitudes right now. 
I asked what they were working on. They told me, they said, blessed are those who mourn. I said, oh, interesting. Tell me. I got a sermon to write this week. Maybe you can do it for me. <laughs> and they did. <laughs> and here's what they said. They said, you know, what we're learning is that the mourning that Jesus is talking about is not only or not specifically just about those who mourn for things in their life, those who grieve um, over a loss, although it's that. But the mourning is for those who mourn because of their sin. So often in Scripture, we're actually told to be mourning over our sin. We're told in the Psalms to be torn up over the fact that we have rejected God. Not to simply confess and repent in a way that is just a light and easy thing. And sometimes we have such a temptation to go there where we just, we think that we are embracing God's grace by making our sin less important. By sort of downplaying how serious our sin is. And the truth is that that is not actually what it means to embrace God's grace. God's grace is not about ignoring what terrible things we have done. God's grace is about recognizing how deep and wide the mercy and the love of God that he would go to all lengths in order to save and redeem us from the terrible, terrible things that we have done. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. Right? The picture of those old hymns is those who are actually drowning, who are stuck in the muck, who are sinking into quicksand. It's about the seriousness of our sins, and that is what makes God so good. And so what the Psalms say and what the prophets say is your sin is awful. It's so awful. It's so awful that God wasn't able to simply say, well, kill a couple cows for me. It'll be all right. It's so awful that God actually entered into our world, entered into our experience, entered into our flesh, and took death on himself to save and redeem us. Maybe what we need to remember is that we need to mourn the sin of others. Oftentimes in scriptures, it's not just my own personal sin that I'm mourning over, that my heart is broken over. It's the sin of my brother. It's the sin of my sister. It's the sin of my nation that breaks my heart. It's the sin of my church that causes me to throw myself at God's feet and go, we can't deal with this on our own. And I'm empty and I'm poured out and I'm crying tears until I have no more tears. I'm doing everything I can to throw myself and say, God, you've got to save this because we're not doing it. <clears throat> and another program and an, a tricky little way of connecting to visitors or connecting to the community or outreach, that's not going to fix our problem. Because our problem is not a scratch on the surface. Our problem is so often a brokenness deep in our bones. And until we throw ourselves at God's feet and mourn and cry out to him and say, Lord, would you do something with us? We have no hope. So blessed are those who mourn. 
They look out and people oppress each other and cheat each other and steal from the poor. In Micah's words, <laughs> what have I done to you? Did you pick that up in the Old Testament reading? God's words to Israel. What is it that I have done to you that you've treated me like this? Is it when I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt that made you so mad that you decided to turn your back on me? Is it when I saved you from Moab and Balak and Balaam and caused you to travel safely through all these people who wanted to kill you? Is that what you're mad at me about? God gets sassy in Micah. He says, and yet you turn exactly to the idols of those nations that I saved you from. You go and you worship the gods of the people that I brought you through. You turn to the gods of sex and power and despair and popularity when you're in need. Let me get real relevant. You want to be a 49er chasing instant fortune or the chief of your own tribe when I'm already the God who has all gold, all wealth, all honor, all hope. But notice what it says. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. For they will be comforted. Because it's, it's not a hopeless message. The blessedness is not in our hopelessness. What's so powerful about this beatitude for me is that as we mourn, we mourn with the confidence that God will comfort us. As Jesus weeps over Jerusalem in the Gospel of Luke, he does it with the confidence that God will restore Jerusalem. As the prophets throw themselves at God's feet, they do it somehow without knowing exactly how with the confidence that God will restore the nation that they're weeping over. So we mourn, but we mourn knowing that we will be comforted. We cry out, knowing that God wins the day. But the end of the story has already been written in Jesus Christ. As 1 Corinthians says, they will be comforted because in Christ the end of the ages has already come. And so if you mourn, you are in the heart, you're in the rhythm with the view that God himself takes on the way of the world. You see that our utter spiritual poverty around us and the only proper response is to mourn for the world's loss. So weirdly, I want to say, would you mourn with me today? Without overstating it, would you mourn that the church and that Christians are in such a sorry state that we need to bring them and ourselves before the Father? On the other end of that, there's a temptation to think that we can mourn and fast and cry and be miserable so much that we now have God on the hook. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we become, we become so pathetic that God has to do what we say. <laughs> like, we whine and we cry so much about our sin and about the sin of everybody else. We think that because of our mourning that God is going to do it. And, and this is where the tension lies because guess what? Blessed are the meek. So yeah, blessed are those who mourn, but you don't own God just because you cry about it. <laughs> blessed are the meek. 
Blessed are those who are humble. Just because we fast enough, scream enough, it doesn't make God have to do what we say. And so Jesus here references the Psalms again. He says, refrain, this is Psalm 37, 8 and 9. I think we read Psalm 37 this morning, but not these verses. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it only leads to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. There's, there's the beatitude, right? That Jesus has brought forward from the Psalms. He's changed those who wait from the Lord into blessed are the meek. But this is the same thing that he's pointing to. He singles out the meek as those who inherit the, the land, those who inherit the earth. And there's always a lot of discussion about meek, what meekness means, because every time we come to this verse, we're like, oh, we, we do back, back flips and somersaults trying to make sure that people don't think it means you should be a doormat, okay? <laughs> like, this doesn't mean that you should just let people walk all over you. No, but what is Jesus referencing? The meek are those who give up anger. The meek are those who give up wrath. In other words, the meek are those who turn in any right they have to vengeance. Any right they have to take vengeance on the world for their own disappointment. We have, if we are meek, no right to get even. We have no right to swoop in and make things right for ourselves. That is God's job. Yes, we say with the psalmist that evildoers will be cut off, but it will happen for those who wait on the Lord and not who go and try to cut off those evildoers themselves because they're sick and tired of evildoers. Only then do we inherit the land. So you see how this corrects some of our extremes of mourning. We've got to respond to sin. We've got to respond to our own sin. We've got to respond to other sin with sorrow by pulling back ourselves from normal society the way a mourner might. But at the same time, vengeance is not ours. We might be tempted, and many have been tempted, to think that because this is a kingdom, the kingdom of God, that therefore we are the army of God and we've got some swords to swing. We just read John 18 this morning with the, with the teens in, youth, in uh, the teen Sunday school class. Peter swinging his sword at Malchus, the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear. And Jesus saying, no, Peter, it's not that kind of kingdom. This is not that kind of fight. This kingdom is not fought on that kind of mountain. It's fought on the Mount of Calvary. It's fought in the empty tomb because that's why our enemy, the devil, is defeated. The picture for me that keeps coming to my mind is David, King David, after his horrible, terrible sin with Bathsheba. Not only taking a woman, using her for his own purposes, not only breaking up a marriage, sending off her husband, and, and requiring his military captains that he be sacrificed to his own desires. Not only that. And then bringing her, in some ways supporting her, but in other ways forcing her to live with him. 
But after his sin, and after the judgment of God on Bathsheba and David, that baby from that union dies. David mourns. He fasts. And he doesn't eat. And he doesn't sleep. He's up all night. And then he washes his face and he asks for food. And his servants say, while the child was sick, you mourned and you fasted and you didn't sleep and you didn't eat. And now that he's dead, you're not mourning? Now that the child has died, you're not grieving anymore? And David's point is, look, God has done what he will do. God has brought his judgment. And for me to stay stuck in that sin of mine, for me to stay stuck in that past, is for me to try to take vengeance on myself or vengeance on God where I'm not going to be all that I was meant to be for my kingdom, for my people, for my nation. God gives him freedom to stand up, to wash his face, and to live his life. And that, is a, in a strange way, is what it is to be meek. That's what it is to be humble. It doesn't just mean that you're down in the dirt. It means that you recognize that all these ends ultimately belong to God. And so at some point, you give up trying to have control over those things. From James 4, it says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The point is that we do all of that, but at the end, that God will exalt you. That we allow God to be the one who lifts us up and raises us up and restores us to life. Because in this kingdom, we submit and we surrender our life to take vengeance on ourselves. We turn that over to God. Where the war that we fight is one of submission to God, resistance to the devil, clean hands, pure hearts, single minds, and as we do that, we're humbled, and in our humility, God raises us up. Remember that in the Scriptures, whoever inherits the land or the earth is a key question. Abraham is promised Canaan. He's given a child, so they actually has somebody to pass that inheritance on to. The Israelites are constantly dealing with this reality that they are out of fellowship and communion with God. But God is eager to give us the land. God is eager to pass that inheritance on to us if we will only be meek enough to receive it. Last thing. Um, we talked a little bit last week and the week before, kind of these four steps around which I'm thinking about discipleship right now. The first is to come and see. It's from John 1. The second is to come follow me, right? Each one is this step just a little bit deeper in, a little bit deeper in, a little bit deeper in. Come and see. Come follow me. The third one is to come and be with me. And it's pulled out of John 14 and John 21. There's this great story in John 21 after he's raised from the dead. The disciples are out fishing, right? And they see a fire out there on the, lake, on the shore. And Peter 
it's Jesus. He gets so excited, he jumps out of the boat. He doesn't even help him bring the boat in, but he's swimming, swimming, swimming in all his clothes. And what is it that Jesus says? Come, have breakfast with me. Just sit around the fire like we used to. Let's make the fish we used to make. Let's just be together. Can we tell some jokes finally? You're just so serious all the time, right? He kind of has this, just come here, spend this time with me. And what we come to see is that discipleship in Christ is about more than just identifying as a Christian, right? It's about more than just saying, <coughs> you know, this is my religious affiliation. It's about more than even being a good, regular church attender and church member, although that's important. To follow Christ is to be with Christ. We begin to consent to Christ in our deepest being. We accept Him as Savior, but also as Lord. And we discover that Christ wants our presence. You know, that's the most radical thing you can say. Jesus actually just wants to be with you. And all the stuff about holiness, all the stuff about getting rid of sin, all the stuff about living a good life and following the rules, you know what that's about? That's just about clearing out all the crud that freaks you and me out so much so that we can just be with Christ. We can just be present with him. Read the Gospel of John. What's he call his disciples? Friends. Friends. I hope, I hope this morning that you're desperate to come into friendship with Christ. That you just want to see everything else fall away. All the stuff that clogs you up and causes anxiety and fear and difficulty. That you just kind of want to take off that load. Just be with Jesus. I want to invite you today as you come to the table to recognize that Jesus just wants to be with you. That's the calling. And that's the joy and that's the freedom in all of this. Is that what he really wants is to know you and to be known by you. And so would you meekly <laughs> give up anything you're holding on to this morning and say, Jesus, just allow me, enable me to be with you this morning. We're going to play a song, but I hope that you can find some silence. As you come and you take the bread, you dip it in the cup. Um, I hope that you can find just a little bit of silence and space to say, Lord, let me be what I need to be in order to be your friend. Indra's out of town. She left on Friday because her brother's real sick and uh, probably going to pass away in the next day or two. Um, and, and so I've had both kids. <laughs> it's like, man, this needs to end. Um, and, 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 and what you, what you realize is like you get into a rhythm of like, I got to take care of the kids. I got to make sure they eat. I got to make sure they're not like, totally covered in like flies and stuff when we walk out the door. <laughs> and, um, 
But when, like, I've just had to let everything else go in my life the last half week. You know, I had to, like, bail on Al a couple times and other people who, it's like, sorry, I just, I just got to do this thing right now. And there's this freedom to just, like, as, as maybe as difficult as it can be, honestly, I, it's been joyful for me, even though there's sorrow there, but it's been joyful to just be able to be with them because I just got to shut down everything else I'm doing and just be as present as I possibly can to this, like, three-year-old. You know, uh, I know God wants that for you. I know that God sees us like an eight and nine month old and a three year old. Just saying, I just want to be. I wish you'd just shut down everything else you got in my life and just pay attention to you. Because I want to be with you. I've given myself to you for you. 